Hey, this is Carl. Are you interested in Xamarin Forms? Do you want to get started with me? Well, if you're going to Dev Intersection October 25th through the 28th, consider going to my Xamarin Forms workshop on Monday, October 24th. It's going to be an all-day workshop. The first half, we're going to set up Xamarin Forms and go through the whole process of getting all your devices hooked up. And second half, we're going to dive right in. We're going to do a whole bunch of stuff, including an MVVM application that you'll be able to use as a model for your stuff going forward. We're going to deal with native components as well as the stuff that's in the box XAML-wise. So go to devintersection.com right now and sign up for the workshop. There's still a few seats left, and uh, we'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1360, with guest Iqbal Khan. Recorded Friday, September 16th, 2016. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And we are in Atlanta at the Ignite Conference. We found a little corner of some bar that's closed, and we're, we're, we're here with Iqbal Khan and uh, going to have a good show. But yeah. man, Ignite, Atlanta, 20,000 people here. 20,000 of your closest friends. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've just stayed away from the keynotes. I don't like people that much. That's just a lot of people. Well, it helps that they're streaming them online. Yeah, so. I'd rather watch in my hotel room. I get my own bathroom. Yeah, exactly. And I guess there's a lot of content that they're going to make available online. A now. lot. Yeah, pretty much everything is recorded. Yeah. And I'm actually doing some stuff for Humanitarian Toolbox. Like, it's been a busy show. It is a big show. You know what occurred to me about mm -hmm. Ignite is that this is sort of the space that TechEd had. Yes. Right? It's an IT conference mostly, but there are some developer content as well. Yeah, I, th I think it's like 80-20. Right. It's mostly IT. It's tough to be a dev at this show. Although 20% of 20,000 is still 4,000 people. That's huge. Yeah. That's, and that's as big as build. And also, if you think about it, because developers and operations are coming together. Yes. Uh, IT and dev, the, the lines are being blurred more and more every day. Absolutely. Then that sort of makes sense that they, you know, rebrand. I just don't thing. know if they're doing it intentionally or not. Yeah. They're thinking in terms of mixing dev and IT pro together here. It yeah. is very much an, a, an IT show. It's it, almost like grudgingly that there's dev here. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, before we get started here, let's roll the crazy music and do the bit we call Better Know a Framework. Awesome. I do. What do you know? Well, uh, I got this email from Martin Woodward. You know Martin Woodward. The yes. .NET Foundation. Hero, and champion. all around awesome guy from Belfast. Awesome guy from Belfast, yeah. So he told me about this project that folks like John Skeet and uh, the F Sharp crowd are loving. And he says he tends to pay notice when people smarter than him like something. <laughs> uh, and the docs are also very good. This is Benchmark.net, a powerful .NET library for benchmarking. Oh, interesting. And it's on GitHub. And of course, this is show 1360. So if you go to 1360, dot pop dot me you'll get there mm -hmm. and uh it's benchmarking so you want to measure how long a method takes in a class to to do what it does typically what we've done in the past you know way back in the dark ages was you know put timers and things like roll that. your own roll your own we've all done it yeah yeah this is attribute based so you basically decorate the methods that you want to measure with an attribute benchmark oh okay and then you have a benchmark runner thing where you you create it with the class name mm -hmm. as a you know it's a generic takes the generic class name 
and just say run and then uh, you get data back. Awesome. So it's it's really cool and a it's, lot of people, it's what you would have written if you took if you really needed to write a great benchmark. Yeah. Right? And it uses all the great modern language features to make it easy. Mm-hmm. I love it. So something I could actually in rather than building like a prototype project just to do a benchmark, I could take an existing project, just decorate some attributes up, run the benchmark. Exactly. And take it back out again if I want to take it out. Yeah. That's really cool. It is cool. So thanks, Martin Woodward. And uh Enjoy. As usual, Martin Woodward being awesome. Yeah. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1224. That's the one we did on HTTP2 with Robert Bodingheimer. Yeah. And that was an interesting show because we were definitely talking about like the modern web and, a, mm. you know, HTTP2 is going to change a lot of stuff. And, and the uh, the listeners agree because uh, Bart and I'm going to trash your last name, man, because I guarantee it's probably Dutch. Huh. So it has entirely too many vowels in a row. <laughs> uh, let's say Bart Verhogen. Okay. That's probably wrong, but it sounds good. He'll know who he is. Yeah, I bet he knows. Uh, I'm really stoked about HTTP2 now because it solves a huge performance pain point when building single-page applications. Yeah. Uh, modularizing a JavaScript code base is a challenge because there are many requests that bog down HTTP 1.1 sites. There's mm. a limit to the number of requests you can make. Mm-hmm. With HTTP2, this is not an issue, and as suggested in the show, we still fall back on bundling HTTP1 if we need to. Yeah. I do hope the server support will continue to improve, and it is. Yep. Because, and I am more worried about browser support than server support. Yeah, yeah. Because this makes a, a very efficient server push and prioritization of files that becomes super important when you're talking about a spa page. Right. And I totally agree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the good news is I think we've done a good job recently of just shedding old browsers. Mm. But maybe we're living in a bubble, right? Because the old browsers aren't going to support HTTP2. The servers are going to come along. It's sort of inevitable, especially folks running in the cloud and so forth. Like, when Azure Websites implements HTTP2, we're all going to get it. Right. right. It doesn't really hurt anything. It's just that's what's going to happen. Sure. Right? And it's just a question of can we get all the people that we care about on the new browser? I have hope because the browsers have done it before, right? Yeah. Well, all and more the, importantly. All the things that we used to need uh, jQuery for have pretty much gone away. Yeah. And, you know, since all the modern browsers are supporting the new stuff, we can just say goodbye to the old browsers. I, and and I think more and more a, people are doing it. It's a change of update. You don't know that Chrome's being updating. It doesn't ask you. No. Right? It, it does it, it updates time. when you close it down. Right. Right? And I think that's the big thing that's happening is stuff's just updating and we're not just talking to you about it. You don't get a, you don't get an opinion. Right. Just keep my stuff current. And if there's a problem, let me know. And don't break anything. And if I can do anything about it. Yeah. Right? That's the thing. Well, that's the horrible. You know, one of these days there's going to be a Chrome update like that that breaks Chrome. Yeah. And people are going to be sad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, Bart, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Google Plus and Facebook. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. They're HTTP2 compatible. Nice. We'll set it down in the big block. <laughs> <laughs> you can use Angular. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, let me introduce to you Iqbal Khan. He's our guest today. He founded a tech company in 1996 with a vision of always being on the leading edge of enterprise application technologies. Initially, he spearheaded the software development services business in leading Java, J2EE, and Microsoft technologies, uh, initially Windows DNA and later .NET-based enterprise applications. And later, he formed Alachisoft with a vision to become the leading provider of high-performance solutions for enterprise application development. The first product, Tier Developer, made its name in the industry as a leading OR mapper and code generator. 
And the second product, NCash, is the industry's leading .NET distributed object cache for high transaction enterprise applications. Welcome, Iqbal. Thank you very much, Carl. Uh, I am a customer of NCash from way back. You've been making this product for too long, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been around a long that time. That also shows my age, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're, you're among old guys. <laughs> any, anybody who can have a reverie about Windows DNA, <laughs> yeah. you, you can stay. I was yeah. just I, I was just thinking about it when you were saying Windows DNA. I said, well... I used to know this thing. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when I really cared about that. I haven't thought about it in a long time. Microsoft Transaction Server. Oh, <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're oh, right. I got my therapist on speed dial now. <laughs> uh, people don't really know. A lot of people don't really know that they need caching. And uh, t- just give us the, the whole idea about why why we need this. Well, uh, first of all, I think everybody knows that the the evolution of web, the HTTP, um, has sort of exploded in terms of businesses wanting to be online. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They want their customers to directly interact with them online through the web, maybe through mobile, through other IoT mm. um, devices. And that the more and more people do that, the more transactions, more activities their backend applications have to do. Yeah. Well... The uh, nice thing about the application architectures is that you can always add more servers in a load-balanced environment. So a typical web application is deployed in a load-balanced. You'll have two or more servers. If you have more traffic, you just add more servers. Right. Very very easy, very simple. That's the... That's the lie we've been sold, right? It's like, <laughs> just add more hardware. Everything will be fine. Yeah. Well, in the cloud, it's as easy as moving a slider, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, f- for a large part, that is true, except for this minor detail called data. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Your mileage may vary. <laughs> and so any, any data that the applications are dealing with, whether that is coming from their application database or that is their session state or any state information that has to be maintained somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that data is usually kept either in the web server if it's a state, um, if it's a, like a session state, mm. or it is kept in a database, a relational database. Mm. And relational databases just do not scale. You can't add 10 servers to your uh, database deployment you know, if your application tier scales up to 50. So that's where the bottleneck starts. Right. We have evidence of this in the real world. One of the first times that we ever talked to Stephen Smith, yep. he did a, a presentation at a tech ed, which was uh, about caching data in an ASP.NET application. You know, that just was actually for Speaker Idol, second. right? Yeah, Speaker Idol. And he won. He won. So all he did was cache the database connection data for one second. One second. And he saw this huge improvement in performance. Right. And and interestingly, the more seconds he added to it didn't seem to matter. Right, right. Just one second. It's, so, the, so, you know, basically a lot of the data that you fetch the first time, you're very likely to fetch it again in that next second. Yeah. Um, and that's for a single user. But if you go into a, a lot of data, is common across users. Um, and you know we're not talking about read-only static lookup tables, you know that of course, but we're talking about transactional data, data that is changing. Yeah. Um, so if one customer made some updates, you know another um, 
user or another uh, server needs to see that data. So data is the really the the, the breaking point of this scalability. So right. and that's that's where the NoSQL movement started also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. But so you know, but a relational databases is something you cannot move away from for your business data. Your customers, sure. your accounts are going to be in relational no matter what. Yeah. So the answer to this came in a form of distributed caching. Um, and, uh, Ncache was not the first product to do it. Most yeah. of them were on the Java side. Yeah. But, Memcached-y. uh, uh, right, right. And then, um, but Ncache was the, the first distributed cache on the .NET side. Okay. Back in 2005. And, uh, essentially, uh, what, you know, instead of thinking about performance, which is what caching is usually associated with that you right. know it's going to improve performance it does improve performance mm-hmm. but there are other ways to improve performance just better programming don't sure. make those unnecessary database calls uh, but what you cannot do is fix the scalability uh, yeah. thing without distributed caching so that's where the need for a distributed cache comes is that you if you're going to need to scale scaling means you want that same really super performance that you had with five users you want the same one with 50,000 users or 500,000 users uh, without your site going down. And still maintaining data integrity, which and, is and really so, what it's all about. Exactly. Right? So a distributed cache has to deal with transactional data, data that is changing very frequently. It needs to make sure that data stays fresh across multiple servers. It is also kept synchronized with the database. So all of those features, if a distributed cache does not have those features, then it becomes more and more of a lookup table. So what is what's the fundamental difference between a just a, a regular cache and a distributed cache? I mean it seems like an obvious question or an obvious answer. Distributed means you have more than one and, and but why and and how does that actually play out? Give us a scenario. Well, a standalone cache would be like the ASP.NET cache object which mm-hmm. a lot of ASP.NET developers know. Mm-hmm. Uh it is in proc it's all the data that you cache stays within your worker process. Yeah. Um, a distributed cache would be that same interface, the same API, but the actual cache uh, resides in a separate process. It may be on the same server as, as your application, or more likely it would probably be a separate server or a okay. separate set of servers uh, in your deployment. IIS did have state server. I've never had a lot of respect for state server because it was kind of unreliable. Right. But there was something bundled with IIS that, that in theory was a shared cache. Right. Actually, state server was a, a standalone auto process, uh, store for session state. Right. It, it did not distribute. It did not synchronize across yeah. multiple servers. And you, you, uh, you could do it. You just have to write all that stuff yourself. Of course. But then state server's whole purpose would die. I mean, uh, I'm, it did not really address the need of a distributed environment. Right. Um, so you you did have the advantage that you did no longer had to keep state within your worker process mm-hmm. because, as you know, worker processes recycle you know, yeah. right. for a, a variety of reasons. So if you had built your cache um, and the worker process recycles, you lose all the cache and now you have to build it all again, right. which may be acceptable if you were only caching application data, but the session state... That's your users. Yeah, you just trash the guy shopping. Exactly. Cards. So, what if you're not using web forms, which is where people use session state mostly? What if you're using MVC or you know .NET Core? Actually, the session state is still alive. Uh, you, you st- the, the view state is the one that has gone oh, away. Oh, that's right, view state. Uh, yeah, but uh, session state is still alive. Even .NET Core has the se- session state paradigm. Right. Uh, so you know every user has a session that you really need to maintain, and yeah, that session. Yeah. 
the permanent, so that cache is the master store. There is no database that mm-hmm. is going to back it up. Mm-hmm. That's one use of a distributed cache. So state server, by the way, was not scalable. No. Uh, it caused a lot of problems. Um, you could write the session state to SQL server, but then you're in a very special kind of hell. Well, not only that, but now you lose the whole caching idea, right? right? If I mean, just for the same reason that you need the cache on top of your application database mm-hmm. is... You don't want to put your sessions in SQL. You know, sessions are stored as blobs in yeah. SQL and SQL. It really are- is abuse of a database, right? Exactly. Like <laughs> you need, all you're saying, here, hold this. Hey, give it back to me. Okay, right. hold it again. Exactly. It's, and it was and it was slow. I mean, it wasn't horribly slow, right. but it was substantially slower than anything we could do in memory. Right. And it was we got. I found more than anything as we got up to high velocity, it was a bottleneck on the networking side. Right. That you just have all this contention going into that database for this dumb store. Exactly. I think, I mean, uh, Microsoft did, did not provide a distributed cache uh, out of the box for session state. It only had the state server and the SQL as the option. Right. A distributed cache essentially uh, would allow you to store the, those same sessions in an in-memory store that is distributed. And that synchronizes the update. So it might also replicate the sessions across multiple servers. So if any one server goes down, you don't lose any data. And uh, that's what distributed means, right? You're going to have, let's say you have 10 machines that are your front line. Each one of those is going to have a, a cache, but they're all coordinated so that they don't have different values in them. So you go to one page, you hit a button, you go to the next page, you might get a totally different server for a different request, but that data has to be synchronized exactly so yeah. i think the so there are two aspects one is the synchronization across multiple servers that yeah. is of course the basic uh requirement the second is replication so you might be able to do synchronization without replication but then you're coming back to an, a different server to fetch your data right. that had it now though he said 10 servers and in my experience that's too many yeah yeah i think most most of what we've seen most of the common most common is the web farm is anywhere between four to ten servers right is, is the most common deployment of asp.net and and we've been doing this for a very long time we've mm-hmm. been for more than 10 years the most common is, is from four to ten servers for the web farm and then you have two to three cache servers right hmm. uh, so it's like a four to one or five to one ratio depending on the and, nature and the of the point use. being if you just have one big pool of servers that everybody's trying to synchronize everything else you have this n plus one problem mm. where the invalidation of an item in one cache means these nine other caches need to be updated and they're all doing it at the same time like it becomes again exactly. very network noisy and right. if you're doing this in azure let's say i mean you're just using these azure websites right uh, is, is there any special consideration there i think uh the the nature of the problem is the same whether you're on a- Azure or, or you're in another environment. But yeah. Azure, of course, makes it easier for mm-hmm. you to do all of this. Uh, okay. Because in my experience, setting this up right is hard. Right. It's easy to make a mistake. Right. And when you when you say cache servers, are these just VMs that run the end cache or whatever the exactly. caching software? Is? Exactly. I think so. A cache server is just a Windows VM and a cache. So it builds a cluster. So you have multiple, two or more cache server VMs mm. that will form a cluster. So they know each other. Yeah. They can, so it, uh, in case of NCache, it's a fairly dynamic cluster. Also, other products also build uh, clusters. Yeah. Uh, a cluster means that that entire collection of servers is one logical cache. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, and it's, again, it's just to cut down the noise. You don't want a one-to-one ratio with the web servers. But I also found we got into, like, you want to believe 
we've, we were sold this bill of goods, right? Just add more services and we'll be fine. And you want to believe, I want to be stateless, right? I get away from, I'm dependent on any one web server. I want to go between multiple web servers. So you get this idea of, I'll just have more web servers. They're all in the same pool. You can go to any one of them. And it's just not true right. when you get to a certain point, right? right. It's right. like, I always, I did talks, like one server to two. It's like, you're never going to go to two. Right. You'll go to at least three, probably four. Right. But somewhere around six, you, you know, there's a sweet, you know, the, there's, a couple of beautiful times in a scaling website. When you're on one server, it's a beautiful time, <laughs> right? It's only one server. Everything's great. Other than that failure problem, right. and most of the time I found with scaling multiple servers is because of reliability, not performance. Right. Then you go up to your first, your, your first cluster, right? All right, I got four or five servers running together. It's another beautiful time. Once you get that working right, it's only one cache pool. It, it, the machines are all stateless to each other. Like, that's a beautiful time. And then you hit the wall. <laughs> and you're like, ah. I got to go up again. And what you add, you don't just add more machines to that. Well, probably you do it first and it actually degrades in performance. Like mm -hmm. that's what really pisses you off. Right. So right. I always found like around seven, eight servers. I'm a little dated now. I want to trust this with new hardware. Mm. You started getting too much network noise again. Yeah. And you suddenly hit this moment. You're like, I'm not beholden to any one machine, but I am beholden to a cluster. So my, I'm back to, I need my user to be sticky, but he's sticky to the cluster. So any machine in the cluster could fail. If I had all the machines except one in the cluster could fail, we still, we wouldn't lose his data. But I have to route one group of people to one cluster, another group of people to another cluster, and they may, otherwise they're completely independent of each other. Very good point. I think, you know, um, so, some of our larger customers, uh, uh, for example, we have this uh, big airline in Europe. They have three data centers. So mm -hmm. they have about 10 to 15 servers in each and a total of 50. So, right. um, you, you know, so we don't see 50 servers in one site. No. So, so they always do stickiness. Uh, to a certain to a given data center to to a given data center because so they're doing like a global DNS routing the first time that guy from that location then will run to that data center kind of exactly thing? okay so, so so I mean they have three different locations um, Dublin London and Frankfurt and when a user logs into one location they stay there but right. so sometimes they have to overflow the traffic to right the well other. you do have that option if that site's down or there's a problem so we'll send you the further one exactly. but we'll keep you there so we exactly. don't lose your state exactly mm. interesting exactly. Mm. so i think that's where the really skill you know keeping a separate caching tier really makes your web tier very much easier to manage because there's no state being maintained in the web tier. You're not beholden to any one machine. Exactly. Is this just the problem with SQL Server or do non-SQL, no-SQL databases have the same problem? Well, uh, it is any relational database has this problem. No-SQL has, because if it's a sharded no-SQL database, um, then the scalability is not a problem okay. uh, uh, because it also scales. But it's and not. And yeah. what ones are we talking about? Um, Mongo, Raven, yeah. So, document yeah. databases. Yeah. So you know, I think on on the Java side, there are a lot of no SQL databases. On the .NET side, you know, the databases which are developed with .NET in in mind are DocumentDB. There's RavenDB. Yeah. We you know we've also just launched a new uh, no SQL database called NosDB. So called what? NosDB. N O S. N O S D B. So um, and and that that's also sharded. Uh, database native .NET. So .NET focused NoSQL databases do not have the scalability problem. Okay. But is this a fair comparison, a caching tool to a data store? I mean, these are not the same thing. Well, uh, my question is, do we need um, caching when we have a non-relational database? 
Presuming that it's faster. Presuming that it's faster. Well, uh, no, no SQL database scales. The yeah. problem is you cannot move all your data to NoSQL. Right. If you have business data, uh, it's going to stay in relational. Mm. So NoSQL is not there to replace relational. It's there to augment. So yeah. some of the data, some of the new data, the social media, the pictures, you know, the, the blobs are a good sure, example. Sure, yeah, the state data is great yeah. there. Yeah. So, I mean, we've, and we've done shows around this where we've talked about this idea of you use the non-relational store, the NoSQL store, as the transactional store, but then... With the customer done, like you've taken their order, now you decompose that data into a relational store for your analytics, or right. you, you know, your reporting and stuff. Ah. You know, the two to right. make, make sense together, right? Because, the, you know, the, it makes a lot of sense to me that you've gathered up this object that is an order. Now you're going to make the customer wait while you take that object apart, write it up in columns and rows. Like, why are you doing that? Right, sure. Just store the object. I mean, I would argue, you know, without putting on my IT accounting hat, <laughs> that's a more legitimate record of truth. That is what the man actually ordered. That was his real data at the time. Right. Right? Because one of the problems you get in relational databases is like, I only want one address. Well, now it's a lie, right? The guy makes orders over several years and he moves. Yeah. You could easily lose his old address. So actually storing the object to me seems more legit. Yeah. The only reason you want the relational stores for the reporting, you know, use them together. Although and then you get that speed, but you also get the, the business capability that a relational database offers you. Although right? designing a relational database nowadays means that you know like the amazon.com thing you, yeah which address would you like to ship you go to? down that that path you have of have hell a separate right? address table and now your joins become more complicated mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. you're decomposing all your exactly. tables and you get back to the same thing why am i making the customer wait and holding up a connection over a web server right to decompose into this crazy system when i yeah. just grab the object <laughs> and go crazy system <laughs> well, it, it seems so simple at the beginning, but it's evolved into something very complex. It really has. You have to just Actually, ask uh, that's also a, a very common use case for a distributed cache. Sure. Uh, you know, a lot of our customers that that we've experienced, they are not ready to move all of their data out of relational to into NoSQL. So sure. Mm. Relational is here to stay. I mean, that's just a fact of life. Uh, but it does have problems that they, you, you know you just mentioned. So what customers do is they store data immediately into the cache mm. and it's it's it gets replicated and the cache then writes it to the database right so the, the application frees itself up by putting it into an in-memory store which is super fast mm. but it, because it replicates it's fairly safe that you, you know you're not going to lose that data and it's it's only there for uh whatever a few seconds that you you'll keep it there even then, milliseconds yeah, really exactly it's just asynchronously right yeah. and so so that's a very common use case also of a distributed cache Outside of the states yeah, uh, yeah. session, uh, the the se session state is one uh, application. The application data is the other sure. use of a distributed cache. And more and more customers are using a distributed cache now for application data. Uh, there are also a bunch of other use cases, especially if you're going to share data across multiple applications. Mm. There's an event-driven PubSub type of a data sharing capabilities that many of the distributed caches have that allow you to coordinate the activity so one application puts something in the cache and the other application get notified yeah and they will pick it up from the cache so that's almost a cache as queuing engine exactly right you know, so so a cache because a cache has now become it's part of your infrastructure mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. really fast it's redundant so it's reliable yeah but it's, it's temporary it's yes. not going to be there for it is a transitory year. data yeah, exactly so okay all the other applications of that data are now becoming more and more common. And that includes what we call runtime data sharing. 
that includes uh, uh, searching. You know, so you do. Oh yeah, well that's the classic Redis application. Yeah. So right? more and more distributed caches are now providing SQL searching capabilities because as you put more data into the cache, you want to be able to search it. You can't just get it based on a key. And it might not be obvious, but where you put this architecturally, if you have services, a lot of services, you know, web-based right. JSON services, right. you want to put it behind the service. Exactly. Not between the service and the and the website. Oh, yes. Uh, the distributed cache is always between the application layer and the data, data storage. layer, yeah. Well, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is uh, now? It must be that happy time again. You know it. This is too much fun in person. It's right? way too much we're, fun. We used to do this remote. So. Well, let's reserve judgment until after the joke. Okay. Because it might not be that much fun. Because <laughs> you know what? It's time to clean up our sticky cluster problem. Oh? It's the same old problem. Yes. Too much data, not enough cash. <laughs> you know, cash doesn't get enough credit. <laughs> Cash. Credit. Okay, yeah, okay. There's charge. You're on, you're on the third pun. I'm, uh, I just keep going. Don't yep. I? You should have stopped after the first one. There you go. It's actually time to give away a music to code by complete collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Music to code by is a set of 25-minute Pomodoro-sized, quiet, and groovy instrumentals, scientifically designed to promote focus. It'll get you into a state of flow and keep you there. And you know, .NET Rocks fans and Guests are being more productive with Music to Code by. See what it's all about. And now you can download the entire 13-track collection for only 39 bucks. Check it out at musictocodeby.net. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Tamir Drescher. Congratulations, Tamir. From Israel. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Tamir. Tamir won the Music to Code by Complete Collection just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But you got to sign up to win. Okay, Iqbal, it's your turn, and this, I bet, how much you want to bet he's going to get storage? <laughs> <laughs> That's yesterday's show. You're just making <laughs> opaque references now. All right, you have five grand, you're going shopping, Iqbal, what would you buy? Oh, you caught me off guard. Uh, <laughs> sorry. No favorite gadgets? Need a new laptop? $5,000. Does it have to of... be all Microsoft? No, 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 no. Anything you want. It doesn't Anything. even have to be about development or data yeah, or no, IT. We've got guys who are camera fanatics. You're like, I blow it on. I, I, I put a down payment on a lens. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. $25,000 lenses. Or by the windshield of a Tesla. <laughs> Actually, I'm a pretty boring guy. Yeah. So, yeah. No hobbies? I, I, I do have hobbies. I play golf. Oh, wow. I'll blow five you grand could, any day. Yeah, that's so, right. So I, I don't know if, if that is legit because I, that's not technology. So. I know. If you already got your clubs and you already got everything for yeah. golf, you could buy a $5,000 bottle of scotch. <laughs> that's it. That's it. You just, you just said it for me. All right. Now, Richard, where does one buy a $5,000 bottle of scotch? I'm disturbed the number of places I know where I could get a $5,000 bottle of scotch. <laughs> I can think of like five, but my uh, favorite way to spend five thousand dollars on a bottle of scotch would be to fly to Scotland. Well, of course, stay at the Craigalachi, stay at where, the Craigalachi, where we stayed, the I mean, and then sample a bunch of thousand dollar scotches until you found one you loved and buy two bottles of it. Oh, all right, how's that? That works. 
And, well, actually, if you add the the flight to Scotland, flight to Scotland, and all of your scotch, you yeah. could easily blow. That five would be five grand. grand. A five grand, Definitely. like weekend scotch vacation back up in in Spay. <laughs> yes, sir. There you go. That's it. And you guys have too much fun. <laughs> well, you know, truth be told, I quit drinking. So. Yeah, I'm going without him now. Uh, yeah, true story. Yeah. Well, we were good at it. Uh, yeah, that's true. I was too good at it. That was the problem. I, I could drink way too much. My liver started complaining. Well, anyway, um, we were just talking about APIs and services. In the microservices world, where does a distributed cache fit? I think it's it still fits between the application layer and the data storage. And all of these these microservices, all of these are examples that the need for caching is growing. Sure. You know, everybody's now talking scalability. That's the big buzzword. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, you know, the mi- microservices layer would also access the same caching tier, um, yeah. and would use it for almost every piece of data that they're dealing with. It does kind of imply that the way you build your microservices infrastructure means you want to clump as many together in the same box where accessing the same cache as you can, right? Because you don't want to have a hundred Docker containers, each running one or two microservices with a hundred copies of NCache or whatever cache. Well, right. The cache is always going to be out of process for it to be scalable. Uh, okay. So, 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 so you don't there's have a separate a local... caching tier. There's That's a small true. subset of the cache that is within the microservice application process, which is what we call client cache. Some people call it near cache. Okay. Um, and that's a, it's a standalone cache, but it's really not standalone. It's connected to the caching tier. Uh, I see. So it is, that's the part that is in proc. That's within the process. Yeah. And that's based on the usage pattern of each uh, application instance. That makes total sense. So if you do have a completely decomposed microservices architecture with hundreds of services, you're really okay as long as you're, they're all talking to you know, it's the number of caching it, servers. Exactly. That and it. I wanted to actually also sort of comment on one of the things that we were talking about earlier about NoSQL versus relational and caching. Mm-hmm. Even with NoSQL, even though that does not have scalability problems, it is not as fast as cache. A mm-hmm. cache is still about 10 times faster than a NoSQL database because a cache is in memory and right. NoSQL is not. And then a number of times faster again than, than, a, than a relational database. And actually, it's even more, it's even faster than a relational uh, and plus, if you combine that client cache, the near cache feature of it, where you're, you've got data on your object heap that you need frequently, you can't beat that with any database. Yeah, you know? sure. So you need a cache on top of both a relational and NoSQL database. Got it. And the reason that you say you should have two cache servers is failover? At the minimum and also scalability because if, mm. you know, if you have more and more traffic, if you only have one server for the caching, no matter how fast that is, it's not going to scale. Yeah. Um, so two is the minimum that you should have. And then okay. you should keep a four to one or five to one ratio between the caching tier and the application tier. Brilliant. Sure. That's what we've seen as the most effective. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm, I'm firmly in your camp on all of this is, you know, when I've, when I've taught about scaling websites and so forth, it's like, look, it's reliability, then performance. And the other one that, that people always forget about, the other reason you do this is, no downtime updates. Right. Right. I want to add a new version of the site, but I'm never going to take the site down because I make money every minute of every day. Mm. And so can I actually take a portion of my cluster out, roll it to the new version, stand it back up again, move the workload over to the new version, and then update the rest? 
and never lose a guy's shopping cart. Like watching a shopping cart go from V2 to V3 with the mm. guy still shopping, he just knows, hey, this site looks a little different now. Yeah. Like that's a good day. Open a bottle of champagne when you can pull off a seamless update of your site. Wow. Exactly. And I think a lot of our customers, that's like the basic requirement that they have is that if they need to have 100% uptime. Mm. Uh, and the, the, so the caching tier is the same and they're going to upgrade the application level because they're going from v1 to v2 on the application level so the same applications that was talking the version one of the application that was talking to the cache version two is going to read the same data back mm. and that's how they upgrade the application some of the customers go even further and say well we need to be able to upgrade the caching tier yep. without any downtime so then uh at least ncache provides uh, a capability that you can take some of the servers down uh, upgrade them and then run them in a backward compatibility mode. And then, so, so let's say if you had uh, four servers in a caching tier, you bring two of them down, run them, uh, upgrade them and bring them back up in a compatibility mode. So they'll still appear as the older version. Got it. And, and then you take the other two out, upgrade them. And then when you bring everything up, then you say, okay, now switch to the new version. Oh, that's switch brilliant. up to the new functional level. Exactly. Yeah. So, wow. And one of the things, one of the practices I got into when we were building sites like this was, Part of your session state was always what version of the app am I working in? Right. So that you could know, oh, you know, we've just done an upgrade. Now this V2 site is running. Mm. This is a V1 cache. Mm. Let's do a one-time process to update this cache item to V2. And then we're fine. That's right? wicked smart. Well, you know, there's all these little <laughs> things. like that. That Again, we get back to the, we were sold a bill of goods about upgrade. You know, scaling is going to be easy. Right. But there's all this subtlety to making it work. Actually, I think the... Uh, in-memory computing is the real buzzword. Uh, more and more of in-memory processing is the key to the future. So this this caching tier that I'm talking about, some people call it data fabric. Uh, you know, some people call it in-memory data grid. Mm. Especially the Java folks call it that. That is the new pattern that is emerging. Is no matter what database you have, whether that is relational or no SQL, you need to have this in-memory distributed layer of storage that is temporary in nature so you can do really speed up uh, your your transactions now i totally get this for shopping carts you know for online ordering and that kind of stuff are there any other scenarios that might be edge cases or other cases where caching would either be appropriate or not appropriate can we think of a few so the most common use cases of the caching that we've seen is what we what we call e-commerce. That just means online business. Yeah. That your application needs to be up all the time and just needs to scale. Your Amazon.com. Amazon.com. Yeah. Although it's not just that. It, no, no, you know, no. There's a whole, you have your own it could private. be social media. It could yeah. be online gaming, gambling. It could whatever, you know. So yeah. uh, anything that's online. Number two use case, which is more common on the Java side and less so on the .NET side, and, and we're, we're trying to push that also, is the big data analytics sure uh, there is no equivalent of hadoop framework on the dotnet side but you know uh, products like ncache we have implemented MapReduce, so you you oh, could wow. build so so you could actually build a cluster so here now you you could build a 50 server cluster sure uh, because you don't you know you're not caring about all speed here what you're trying to do is separate out workloads exactly and wow. and, and and these are not updates these mm -hmm. are mainly reads yeah uh, and but the goal is that you want to be able to run your code within the cache process right on each of these so, so if you have a 50 server cluster you want to ship your map reduce code 
uh, and it needs to run within the cache process and the data within the cache must be in an object form because in an e-commerce scenario, the data is usually kept in a serialized form. Sure. Yeah. It's always fetched from a different server. Yeah. But in a MapReduce, the data is fetched in an object form. So imagine if you could have a 50 server cluster. I'm walking through, thinking through this. So 50 servers, each run in the cache. Right. You use the distributed cache feature to just dump the data once and it will naturally push across. Exactly. And then you have an algorithmic rule so that each server works on a different piece of the cache. Exactly. And, and they, and they, and then they work simultaneously and you effectively get a reduce with the synchronization. Exactly. And you have basically APIs that we can use in our own code. Exactly. So you could do the MapReduce, the exact same MapReduce paradigm that you have on the Java side, you could do it in .NET. It's all, you can do it in C Sharp or wow. a, a, any other .NET. And that code automatically gets shipped to the cache cluster and runs within the process. And as you said, it works on its own data set. So there's a mapper, there's a, a reducer, and there's a, you know. I got to say, that's bloody brilliant. Right. So, so those are the main use cases. Um, wow. There's a couple of interesting use cases. I mean, there are other times that I've used caching in applications, I was working with an organization that had uh, nothing but like field technical guys, hundreds of them, and the documentation that they used updated almost every day. And if you actually had to fetch that from disk each time, it just crippled the system. Mm. And so loading up these really quite large documents into an in-memory cache made a huge difference in performance, although we also learned, like, don't let the user be the cache populator we actually had a mechanism to go oh yeah. here we'd always be serving the docs from the cache and then the, as new docs came in we'd create a new cache item for the new version of the dock and only when it was ready would we destroy the old one and now substitute the new one so that from the user's point of view and granted it was only hundreds of users not millions of users mm -hmm. or maybe a couple of thousand they only ever read from the cache Wow. So we managed cache really tightly but that was a few hundred cache objects to a couple of thousand users and they were big. They were megabytes each. What I'm what I'm thinking of here is that there are other distributed computing uh, problems or or applications other than MapReduce, and you you certainly could use the dis the, the distributed features of uh, NCache to do uh, these other problems. Like um, you know what I'm what I'm thinking of is a, a rendering farm, for example. Although really, that's still a kind of a MapReduce problem, right? Because your map you're taking a large problem breaking into chunks, shoving it across multiple machines, letting them each work on their individual piece, and then the reduces bring it all back together with just the differences. Yeah, yeah I suppose you're right. So actually, NCache supports MapReduce, which is the standard, you know, driven by Hadoop. Yeah. Of a par I mean, it was originally a paper from Google. Exactly. Hadoop implemented it. Right. But it's what it really is is a pattern. Exactly. Right? Yep. This is a pattern, and it, it applies to an awful lot of yeah. interesting work. Yeah. So NCache has implemented that, but the NCache also provides this called uh, entry processor. So it, that's just a code in a piece of code that you can choose to run, uh, and that's not. It does not f follow any pattern. So maybe anything that does not fit into the MapReduce pattern, you could do it through entry processor. Yeah. But entry processor also runs in proc. So. And so NCache is open source. And cache is open source. Although, admittedly, you're, you're showing us an, an Apache con, uh, uh, license and you got one contributor, which is you guys. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> you know, the, do, the .NET side is not really open source savvy yet. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're, you know, we made NCache open source about two years ago. Okay. Uh, so, January 2015 is when we made open source. So, we're, we're trying to go with the Microsoft's 
yeah. wave of making things open source. Right. NOSDB was launched as open source from day one. Right. Um, we m- ourselves make a, a lot of contributions into the open source. So open source is always kept up to date. Mm. Um, and open source has no limitations in terms of the number of instances or anything. It has some feature limitations, uh, right. but, but not in terms of size. So you have an internal version that you use so or the, sell. So, so we have an enterprise edition, which right. is built on top of open source. It has more features, right. but the, the core is common. That, that core is the open source. And open source is unlimited uh, instances, so yeah. you, you know you 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 can use it in as large of an environment as you want. Sure, it just has fewer features. Yeah, the it, other- it just looks like you, you you guys aren't in a place necessarily at this point where you have a lot of people all adding to your project. Yes, but that's not unusual for a, a business based open source. And the enterprise product obviously has the support which they really need in exactly. a product. Yeah, and, and then NCash is also available on Azure, um, so that you can actually. Either use open source or enterprise on Azure and just. And what about other clouds? As uh, Amazon. Also on Amazon, yes. So, yeah. so, so we're on Amazon also. If we're talking about cloud, what do you say to folks who go, I don't need any of this stuff. I don't need to do this stuff. I'm in the cloud now, man. I have a knob. I just <laughs> turn it up. Uh, so if, if you're, a, if your need is not as intensive. Right. Uh, then that's exactly what you would say. And most of the, the smaller businesses, uh, tend to have a simpler use of the cash. But most of our customers have very intense use of cash. Right. So in fact, most of our customers haven't even moved into the, into the cloud yet. Right. But if, but if they're using your cash, they're probably using cloud as a, an infrastructure play, right? Exactly. They're running the VMs. It's their architecture. They want to control everything. And they're getting control of it. If you're going up to that platform play, if you're doing Azure website and so forth, I don't know that I see a role for NCash in that well, scenario. But I would think that if you are using SQL Azure, you know, the more you use it, the more expensive it gets. So the more the the fewer hits on your SQL Azure database that you have, the the cheaper it's going to be. Does that make it. sense? Can you actually make NCache work with like Azure websites with the platform player? Yes, definitely. So the caching tier itself is going to be VMs, right? Okay, so um, you're setting up your own IaaS implementation of N- NCache, but then your Azure website could be calling to it. Exactly. So the client portion of NCache, which is the the, the library portion, can be embedded within the uh, Azure websites without sure. any problem. Any, anything C sharp, really. Anything C sharp. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I want, and I wonder what the economic saving would be on that because you were genuinely talking about less traffic to SQL Azure. I'll tell you one thing is going to happen. I bet you it's less latent. Yeah. We get real hard spikes from SQL Azure every so often. Right. Uh, I mean, you will save on the bandwidth cost. You will definitely save on performance and scalability. Mm-hmm. The, the caching tier is much closer to your, it's part of your region. Yes. It, it is part of your VMs. Yes. Which SQL Azure is not. Yeah. So what about blobs, you know, blobs that people take off of a S3, for example? Do we cache big blobs in, uh, in cache tier? So that's the other big usage uh, of caching is that because cache is an object cache, a blob is an object. Right. So uh, it's a perfect uh, use case to store blobs in the cache. Does size matter? Uh, in, in <laughs> <laughs> it's a very reasonable question. I don't know what you people are thinking about exactly. Welcome to Oprah. There you go. But, you know, when you just talk about storing a regular object, 50K, maybe 100K, when I think blob, I think big, megabytes. Yeah. Like, what happens when cache objects get that big? So, we've got customers like Getty Images uh, mm-hmm. that, that that store large objects. Right. Um, and, and we, NCache provides a streaming API also. So, cool. so, they, so you could store very large objects. There's not, there's no limitation. Gentlemen, I have a proposal. Mm-hmm. Tell me if you like this idea. We're going to implement NCache in the .NET Rocks website. 
and also against the .NET Rocks downloads. And we're going to see how much money we save. Well, okay. and I'll tell you this. We send, I mean, we make more shows than most podcasts do, but that's only, you know, a few a week. Right. Most of the time, with the exception of the comment session, we're serving the same data over and over again, and we fetch from the database every time. Every time. Yeah. And we fetch from S3 every time. Yeah. And we'd be more than happy to work with you. Let's do it. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. Isn't that a great idea? It's yeah. a very cool and idea. And then we'll come back and, and announce on another show. And we are going to incur the course of, of some new VMs. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, obviously a certain amount of work to make all that work. But we'll actually do a real test case yeah. and see how much money we save on based on a percentage. And uh, that yeah. that would be great. See if it, it actually makes sense. sense to do that. It's interesting to think about third-party caching in the cloud. Like that's a very interesting problem space to work in. Right. So what's next for NCache? Where are you going from here? Yeah. Well, NCache uh, is a fairly mature product, and we're uh, we're always keeping it up to date with the latest in in the evolution. For example, the .NET Core. Yeah. We're we're working on releasing a .NET Core client. Got it. The cache server is not portable to .NET Core at this time. Sure. Because .NET Core is not ready for servers yet. Yeah. Um, but the day that it becomes ready we would love to port it to dotnet core so that we could have uh you know we can be part of the microsoft's long-term strategy mm -hmm. um so as you know ca caching as a solution um is here to stay i think yeah. in memory computing is here to stay and you know we're, we're, we're glad to be part of this journey that's great uh iqbal khan thank you very much for spending this hour with us it's been cool geeking out with you i, I enjoyed it tremendously you guys have a lot of fun yeah, they certainly <laughs> do <laughs> and so do our listeners and by the way we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm